This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Liz Marshall, director of the documentary Meet the Future, Meet in this case spelled M-E-A-T, narrated by Jane Goodall and featuring music by Moby, Meet the Future examines what many consider the next agricultural revolution, whereby real meat is produced sustainably without the need to breed, raise, or slaughter animals. Indeed, the film explores the realm of clean meat, so-called meat cultivated in a lab setting from animal cells, but these animals remain unharmed and by tracking a true innovator in the field, Dr. Uma Valetti. Valetti gave up his career as a cardiologist to co-found and serve as CEO of Upside Foods, previously called Memphis Meats, perhaps the leading startup in this growing industry. Meet the Future follows Valetti and his team over five years as the company evolved from nascent experimentation, the famous... uh, in that world at least, $18,000 meatball, to developing the science while reducing the cost of the resulting meat, raising significant capital, and navigating through the processes to receive approval from federal agencies. We'll hear more about this world and this film when I speak with Liz Marshall in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, I'll speak with Eric Keaton, Chief Marketing Officer at the SPCA Tampa Bay, which this Saturday, April 2nd, holds its annual pet walk, 31st annual pet walk, that is. The event involves walking your pet along the waterfront in downtown St. Petersburg at North Straub Park, and this helps raise money for the SPCA Tampa Bay. More on the pet walk later in today's show. Right now, though, let's talk Meet the Future with its filmmaker. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Liz Marshall, back on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Liz. Hi there. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's been a few years, but uh, happy to have you return now today to, uh, to talk about mainly of course meet the future and congratulations on that film by the way it's a really fascinating uh, film about uh, an important game-changing topic but before we delve into discussing that film i'd like to ask you a more general question i'm always interested to uh, pose to documentary filmmakers because i think most people know by now that making a documentary typically involves a commitment of several years and that's if there's not an unexpected snag or other problem delaying production even further so uh, and again, I think it's safe to say making a documentary is rarely viewed as a get-rich scheme. So a big question I always have is, how do you decide on the topic or, and or the film that you're going to make next? What's what's your criteria? I'm not so much asking about uh, Meet the Future per se, but just generally, how do you sort of go about saying, okay, here's here's what my next film is and here's how I've arrived at that decision? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Um, because as you, as you said, uh, it is such an, an enormous commitment. And yeah. so in, in that regard, 
um, it becomes fully immersive um, over quite a few years. In this case, with Meet the Future, um, I have to say it's the longest commitment for me because uh, I'm in the sixth year now as we're rolling it out right now with our release on April 5th. So yeah. we're, in the campa- we're in the campaign right now, um, like the impact campaign. Um, so, uh, yeah, an enormous commitment, which involves risk, um, you know, to hang your hat early on on something that may or may not get off the ground like this story, because it was back in 2016 that I decided to, um, you know, follow my instinct um, and my intuition that this was really um, a story that would become something. Um, But, of course, that was a risk. And thankfully um, for the world, but also for the film, (laughs) um, it did become something, and it rapidly accelerated there were so many twists and turns along the way. And, um, you know, when we started filming in 2016, it was very novel. It was very um, abstract. Whereas today, it's actually in the main sort of, you know, media cycle, news. Um, and a lot of people know about this topic. So I think it's been a fascinating journey. Um, when you're a documentary filmmaker... Um, you, in a sense, become like a small E expert in that particular field over time. Yeah. Because you, you sort know, of have fully, to, right? You have to. It, it, yeah. You're fully immersive. I mean, obviously, like I'm not a scientist or a business specialist or any of those kinds of things, um, you know, uh, or, you know, like, um, you know, I don't really. Uh, have the background in those areas at all. Um, but I, I, I sure know a lot more than I did when I started. Like, it's, it's fascinating in that regard. And I, and I love my work yeah. and feel, feel privileged to be able to do this work um, in a way that uh, allows me that opportunity, but also yeah. is, you know, that we can, in the end, provide the world with, um, you know, a powerful platform, which is what a feature-length documentary can be, yeah. is a vehicle. It's like a vehicle for, um, you know, reaching global audiences and having impact and being able to, uh, you know, foster and stimulate a lot of awareness and discussion around important subjects. Yeah. Well, so what you said there uh, has prompted at least two or three follow-up questions and and at least one comment, because the thing about the requirement really as a documentary filmmaker to kind of really dive all the way in and really immerse yourself and become uh, an expert um, just because, whether whether, again it's in a field that you might not have uh, natural expertise in or whatever, but I, I, I guess part of the risk if you if you didn't do it that way was that you could work for again x amount of years as we've talked about, which is just inherent to to making a documentary, emerge with a film, and then if you hadn't immersed yourself and and developed that kind of expertise along the way, I guess you could come up with a film that missed some important point. Yeah, absolutely. And also, every there's no film that will satisfy everyone's 
um, hunger. Um, sure. I guess that's a pun in this uh, context. But there's no film that will satisfy everyone's need for knowledge um, or, you know, because this topic that we're going to dive into yeah. is, is a topic that opens up a thousand questions. And so the film is character-driven, um, meaning, you know, it's not an informational survey-style film that jumps around and is sort of newsy and journalistic. Instead, it's a story. And yeah. it's a story about um, uh, Dr. Uma Valetti, who was born and raised in India. And his first big dream was to um, train as a cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic in the U.S. And so he moved to the U.S. And he ended up becoming, um, you know, well-known in his field as a cardiologist. But then, in 2015, he followed his deepest passion. Um, and, and, you know, he, he did a very risky career turn. Um, and he became an entrepreneur. In 2015, he and Nicholas Genovese, who's a scientist, they co-founded Memphis Meats, which is a startup company, um, and they basically, you know, put everything into it to yeah. innov innovate the production of real meat from animal cells, so yeah. without the need to breed, raise, and slaughter uh, animals, um, this could, you know, be a silver bullet. It could be the thing that could really help transform our world yeah. uh, for, the, for the better. So it was in 2016, I saw in the news that they had uh, unveiled a prototype, which was the world's first um, cultured, which is what it was called back then, cultured meatball. Yeah. And, and yeah, this meatball cost $18,000. Um, but what a feat, what a, you know, tremendous innovation. And uh, anyways, I started following the story then, and here we are today. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's back up a little bit, only because I was hoping to develop a little bit more context for for Meet the Future and, and Dr. Valetti and, and some of those things. So let's go back to where you said you, you had an instinct and you followed it. So I'm guessing this is probably sometime after you'd completed your, your film, Midian Farm? Yes. So... The, the last time I was on your show, I believe, was in, it might have been in 2014. Yeah. When, uh, you know, we were in the impact campaign phase of the Ghosts in Our Machine. That's exactly so right. Ghost, yeah. Yeah. So the Ghosts in Our Machine is, uh, was an, is an animal rights documentary that follows, uh, uh, photojournalist Joanne MacArthur around the world as as she as she does her work yeah and public published her first book made her first book and that's what that film is about and following that I did a, another film called Midian Farm um, which was a deep dive into a piece of my formative history about um, a social experiment in the seventies that my parents founded. Um, that all miserably fell apart, but it's uh, it was like a utopian um, kind of 
vision of people living off the land and, and um, you know, uh, altruistically. Um, anyways, after that, or during, even during making that film, I was actively seeking um, a story that was solution-focused, that brought together the issues that I care about, and that focused on a really interesting person, so that I could follow that person over time as they were doing something active that was solution-oriented. And that's when Meet the Futures came together in 2016. So that's really interesting because uh, that's kind of what I was, uh, among the things I was interested in, in sort of sorting out is, uh, again, how you approach things as a documentary filmmaker. So so it sounds like you'd finished Midian Farm, you were looking around for something, but you had a, you had something very specific you were looking for uh, in terms of a, a, a figure or a person or a leader, um, but otherwise you didn't have any specific uh, realm that that would take place, and you're just saying, that's that's what I'm looking for because that's probably going to become my next film. Well, I wanted to focus on the animal issue again. Okay. So- um, and what I like, what I love about uh, the topic, the subject matter of animal agriculture, is that it really is an intersection of social, environmental, animal rights, justice issues. It brings everything together. You know, it, it's, a, it's an animal rights issue. It's an environmental sanity issue. Um, and it's a human rights, public health um, issue. So I'm sure you and your viewers are, are, are well um, versed in the dire issues. Um, associated with industrial animal agriculture. Sure. Um, and so I was actually really wanting to find a solution because often, you know, documentaries are about a problem, but, you know, we need solutions. We need yeah. not solutions that are utopian aspirations or simply an idea. Ideas are wonderful and we need to imagine. We need ideas. However, we also need viable solutions, things that are pragmatic and that are underway and that, can, that we can, you know, work towards um, because of the climate emergency, because of so many, you know, issues that are pervasive and dire. Yeah. And so Meet the Future does not focus in too much on, you know, the horrors of animal agriculture in yeah. its current state. Rather, it really focuses on this unfolding, burgeoning uh, birth of a new industry. And it's referred to as cultivated meat. Yeah. That's what this industry is actually referred to now as. Mm-hmm. And so when, when Memphis Meat, um, back in 2016, unveiled that little incredible meatball, yeah. Um, since then, the company actually rebranded, and they're called Upside Foods now. Yeah, and they're they're a leader in in this field. Yeah. So, back to the what I said earlier about taking a huge risk 
in focusing on this story, a lot of startups just disintegrate. They sure. fall apart. Mm-hmm. They don't get off the ground. But instead, what happened with this story is that Uma Valetti actually rose in prominence as a CEO very, very quickly. Um, um, and the company accelerated forward and, you know, attracted a lot of investment from around the globe, including from the meat industry itself. And that was a major twist and turn. That was very surprising. Yeah. Um, no, that, 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 uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And then, you know, here we are today, 2022, and there's over a hundred startups around the globe that are pioneering cultivated meat, fish, and seafood. Yeah. Now it's not regulated on the market anywhere except for Singapore, but in the U.S., the FDA and the USDA are in a process to bring it to market to regulate it. And Upside Foods is um, they did a ribbon cutting ceremony last fall, so in 2021, um, to unveil the, the world's largest production facility for, for producing cultivated meat. Yeah. And that's in Berkeley. Right, which is where they, I guess, have been based kind of as they've unfolded their whole story yeah. and operation. Um, and I'm, I'm vegan uh, for ethical reasons, and I tried their cultivated meat uh, twice over the course of my research and filming. And I, I didn't have an ethical dilemma um, around doing that. Okay. Well, I was, yeah. Go, go ahead, sorry. No, I, I, uh, my conscience uh, felt clear and clean about, about sampling um, their... Uh, innovation. Yeah. It felt like going to the moon. Um, and I always get asked in interviews whether I tried it and, you know, whether I will eat it in the future. I'm, I don't need to eat meat. I don't want to. So it's not something I'll integrate into my diet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I had no issue trying it at all. And that was a really interesting um, experience. Well, and again, that goes back to, I think, what we touched on earlier, which is that uh, as a documentary filmmaker, if you're diving into a, a given topic, a, different, a given world, different company, whatever it might be, and this is all those things and more, uh, it would almost seem uh, like as part of that, uh, given the focus of, of what the cultivated meat that, that, that is at the, you know, somewhat at the center of the story, that you would almost feel like, well... Uh, I don't have to eat it on an ongoing basis, but I I probably should try it just so I have some kind of direct experience with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so let's, um, I I guess uh, before we delve even further into meet the future, um, because some what we've talked about is you know, films before that and kind of how you approached this film before you knew what it was going to be exactly. So is there a certain, um, theme or ethos that you would say kind of typifies your films? Like, is there a certain uh, philosophical bent to, to sort of be a Liz Marshall film at this point? Mm-hmm. What would you say? 
Well, I mean, I, 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 I'm sorry to say I haven't seen MIDI in form, but I mean, it seems like otherwise, some of the things you mentioned earlier that this, this new film is about also would, would sort of typify at least the one that we talked about eight years ago, which, so again, interest in uh, animal rights, uh, environmental concerns, uh, related issues. And so it seems like those are at least present uh, in this film and certainly in The Ghost in the Machine um so that yeah i i would say um to if i would say my articulation of my work would be that i i use interesting people as an entry point to uh reflect on and examine really big moral questions um so you know grappling with, uh, you know, our own human species and the choices we make um, and our relationship to other species and to our planet and to other humans. And I think these are all very big sort of uh, philosophical questions. My work does not, um, is not didactic. I do not uh, prescribe or... Um, sort of uh, try to convince people of anything. But what I do, what, but what I do uh, feel very passionately about is using my filmmaking skills and my approach to filmmaking as an as a, uh, opportunity to help people see the world in a new way yeah. and help people... Uh, open people's minds and hearts. So hearts and minds and remove people's blinders um, to see, you know, our world um, and animals and nature yeah. in, in more expanded and deeper ways. Um, that is really, I think, the best way that I could sum up my my approach. Right. To, in terms of in terms of you know what is the outcome that I'm looking for. Yeah. I hope you know with Meet the Future, I hope that, and 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 certainly um, the purpose of the film, it, its usefulness in the world, is it's really uh, a, a vehicle for change because. Um, it, it's the it's the world's first and only feature length documentary about the birth of this industry. Yeah, and so in that regard, it will stand the test of time. It will be that film that is you know that was witnessing the genesis phase of something that could really transform uh, the world. Yeah. All right, well, I want to get more into the film and, and, and Dr. Valetti and, and more into it, but just in case some people maybe just have tuned in, I want to let those folks know this is Talking Animals on WF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guest is Liz Marshall, director of Meet the Future, a documentary examining what many consider the next uh, agricultural revolution, the realm of clean meat or cultivated meat, um, meat uh, developed in a lab setting from animal cells, but these animals remain unharmed, and the film focuses on tracking a true innovator uh, in this field, former cardiologist Dr. Uma Valetti and his company, 
uh, now called Upside Foods. And the documentary is narrated by Jane Goodall with music by Moby and becomes available on demand uh, next Tuesday, April 5th. So if you'd like to ask Liz a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So you say, yeah, it's not... Your films aren't uh, didactic, but you also said earlier that um, you can't just, you know, raise questions without, you know, coming some providing some information, if not answers, to to some of those. And so I think what we have really here, uh, first of all, it, it, it sounds like when you decided this was going to be the film and Dr. Valetti was going to be kind of the the center of it, uh, just by instinct. I mean. Your instinct, I guess, could not have been more uh, attuned, right? Because uh, they, you know, he he is an amazing figure, and which we'll get into more in a moment. But um, but really, also, I guess, around the time you decided this would this would be the the topic of your next film, they were really embarking on an, an, a huge kind of quest, which is always obviously great in the form of a film, right? Somebody on a quest to do something, and. Um, it, this is, I mean, this is kind of a big, sprawling quest, but it's a quest nonetheless, no? Absolutely. It's like a mission. Yeah. And I think, I think that is sort of universal classical story telling, is, um, you know, someone that sets out on a, an enormous mission. Yeah. Um, and, and that, you know, we started following right at the time that the company had just moved into their little facility. Um, you know, there's boxes everywhere in the first scene. <laughs> yeah, just unpacking and, boxes, basically, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the that's the greatest sort of um, strength of the film is that we were actually able to follow the story over time. And, and did you? Oh, go ahead, Liz. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. So I was just going to say because of something we talked about early on, sort of at the outset of the conversation. Did you know when you happen to? Cat capture them just like getting started and literally moving into their office and unpacking boxes. Did you know or sort of extrapolate from there like how many years this this would take probably to tell their story to really track kind of how the quest was playing out in a meaningful way in terms of storytelling? I knew it would take longer than a year. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, um, all right. You but, probably didn't yeah. anticipate five years or thereabouts at the time. No, I didn't. Yeah, but but once you got going, it was like, well, I got to I got to stay with this, right? I mean, there wasn't probably any way to say, well, I've, I'm two and a half years in, and I've, I've done this and I've done that, and yeah, it just didn't seem like enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you had to keep going. Yeah. I had to keep had to keep going to really be able to tell the story. Yeah, and Doctor Valetti, as we've kind of touched on a little bit, but it's really. Uh, again, at the center of that quest and, and a fascinating figure, again, as you mentioned, I mean, for one thing, not many highly trained cardiologists jettison their medical career to, to sort of take a flyer on a new venture that, that's just brimming with uncertainty, but that's exactly what he did. And on the other hand, another thing that kind of makes him distinctive from the get-go and, 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 and a compelling figure all throughout uh, as an example is that when he was, uh, he recalls in the film that when he was growing up as a child in India, he would dream of meat growing on trees basically as an alternative to, to the killing of animals. So 
you kind of know this this guy is you know unusual in all kinds of ways and and that some of this is going to drive that quest and and so that in some ways it almost does make sense that a guy would say okay I'm gonna, I'm a hotshot cardiologist but I'm going to set that aside for now to pursue this Exactly that's why uh, following him and, and his wonderful spouse, Mernalini, who's also a doctor, following them back to India, uh, you know, to include that part of the personal in the film was really important because it, it was the, it's the opportunity in the film to understand Uma's roots, uh, what motivates him, where he comes from, and his early dream of wanting to help solve the world's problems and um, his love for animals. Yeah. And uh, as the film unfolds, we see Dr. Valetti and our colleagues uh, at, at Memphis Meats, again, now Upside Foods, um, in some very specific settings, important meetings of one kind or another, hearings and so on. Um, so I, 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 it's clear now why you decided this this was the film and this was the guy, but f- f- on their side of it, how did how did they know? Like, hey, uh, we 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 should give Liz this kind of access because some of that access is seems to me really unusual to be in some of those meetings or in some of those hearings the way you are with the film. Yeah, and access is everything. If you want to tell a good documentary story, yeah. Um, over time, if you don't have access, then you really don't have a good story. So securing that behind-the-scenes access early on was the key yeah. to ensuring any kind of um, possibility with this film. So he also had an instinct um, about the film. So uh. he, I was introduced to him through a mutual friend. Um, Bruce Friedrich, who had just launched the Good Food Institute. Um, maybe you've interviewed him before. I have um, indeed, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So Bruce and I are friends, and Bruce introduced me to Uma, and Uma trusted the connection. Okay. And and the recommendation of Bruce. Um, and probably your body of work, too, I would think, as well, right? Yeah, it, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. My yeah. my body of work, and then also the introduction, mm-hmm. and then the, the you know my my vision to follow Uma and his team over time. Um, he just agreed to it, so it was good timing. Yeah. So there's <clears throat> so many uh, elements to this, and it it, it is you know uh, I mean the film's not long, but the but the story that it tracks as we touch on is long. It's five years or so. So we really see the evolution of this this kind of brainchild startup and then how how it becomes what it becomes. Um and yet there's some, some interesting and, and like uh sort of weird bedfellows here and there. Um I mean, I think you mentioned this kind of briefly, but but I was super struck by the fact that um, uh, traditional meat producers like Cargill, you know, voice their support for Memphis Meats, and and I think Cargill and Tyson are are like early or somewhere along the line at least are investors in this venture, which seems hard to reconcile at first. Yes. Yes, I agree. Um, it was a sh- it was a surprise 
Yeah. But is that but does that further in your mind speak to how distinctive uh, I mean it really all comes down to Dr. Valetti, really. So was it just the with what he was like and his vision that you got people that are like totally conventional, traditional meat producers investing in something that's not necessarily eager to put them out of business, but certainly provide a distinct alternative to, to how they do what they do. So it, it, it's, it's, it seems counterintuitive almost initially. I agree that it, initially it feels um, counterintuitive. However, um, the, the, the deeper uh, you understand about this um, and how the story unfolds, it makes sense because if you don't have these, you know, massive transnational um, uh, meat producers on board, then how can this really get off the ground yeah. in a significant, meaningful way at scale? And yeah. that is really the, the, the big hurdle that lies ahead is how, because the innovators of these startups, they have succeeded. It's, it, there's a victory in the science behind this. Yeah. They, they, you know, they have created real meat that, uh, you know, has the taste, texture, feel, everything of real meat. Um, there's been tastings and chefs and all kinds of people that uh, can, can um, provide testimonial. Um, about that side of things. Yeah. Um, so the, the big feat that lies ahead is scalability and affordability and accessibility. Those are the three big things yeah. um, that lie ahead for this industry to succeed. And so a CEO like Uma Belletti, who is like a master diplomat, his vision has always been to work under a big tent so yeah. to include everybody, all parties and stakeholders to create the transformation that is truly needed. Yeah. Um, and I think there's been some pushback and, and uh, quite a bit of debate around whether that's the right approach or not. But certainly for this, you know, as a new food ecosystem to get off the ground, it needs to intersect with the existing food system, uh, which is a vast, uh, you know, multi-tiered, um, you know, multi-trillion dollar, <laughs> you know, giant uh, operation. Yeah. Uh, when, you, when you really dive deep into what it is, um, and, you know, with population growth and, you know, by 2050, um, you know, you know, the amount of people that will be on this planet, 10 billion people, 10 billion, yes, 10 billion, and that meat consumption is expected to double by then. Right. Um, the, the, the meat industry knows that they can't meet the demand of the people. And that's actually a quote from Uma from the film. Yeah. Um, and so this is something that they've invested in because they understand that the conventional mode of meat production is completely unsustainable. 
not to mention it's completely inhumane and archaic. Right. And it may be that in our lifetime, this transformation takes place. Yeah, so in that context, it makes sense that that the Cargills and the Tysons uh, are are on board. Meanwhile, we also see along the way that that representatives of various um, cattle organizations uh, don't look at it quite the same way. Right. I think there's some ranchers and farmers that are, um, you know, they've got some questions and and uh, there's some pushback around labeling issues. Right. Um, well, they, yeah, I guess they object even to the use of the word meat in this context. Per- correct. Yeah. And that's included in the film. Yeah. So that battle is represented um, in the film um, because we were able to gain access to some historic meetings that took place in the U.S. Um, through the FDA and, and the USDA. And it was, you know, people that could come and on the public record voice their questions and concerns. And so it was an interesting environment to be in because you had, you know, the, you know, the startup world and, and the CEOs and pioneers of, you know, Silicon Valley in the room. And then you had, you know, ranchers and farmers from the Midwest. So it was, it was an interesting, almost collision of cultures. Yeah. Um, but, but, but also working together because, uh, you know, the agencies, the FDA and the USDA um, want this to succeed. Yeah, well, that, that's partly what I meant earlier, too, about um, access, because some of the things that, that, that you present in the film... Uh, I was like, wow, that, that's, uh, that's something that she got a camera in there as this kind of discussion was going on. And, and also, um, it, it's just kind of a little bit wise guy, but it's, it seems like ultimately by the time the film is done, there, there's almost like a cast of thousands that we've met in terms of people that are involved in this, that weigh in on this, that testify about this, that have some kind of opinion uh, of one kind or another perspective. And there's a lot of folks that uh, that end up on screen um, and meet the future. And did it did it ever feel like, wow, this this is a lot of folks to kind of lasso into uh, to one film? It did. And I think as a filmmaker, um, for me... I always had to come back to, okay, you know, what is my approach to storytelling? And it's always character-driven. So this is about Uma and his mission. Um, It's about his team and how they're growing and the rapid acceleration. So that's an entry point that's representative for the growth or birth of the industry worldwide. But then at a certain point, you also need a wider lens, like literally and figuratively, Mm -hmm. you know, to be able to include other voices or more context. Yeah. And that's when I realized, wow, the media plays a huge role in this because they're so interested in this topic. So you'll notice in the film, there's a number of journalists within different environments that are interviewing 
Uma, or um, there's also sequences, like segments throughout the film of different, um, you know, headlines from yeah. the media. Yeah. And I think that, for me, was the way to do it, rather than cutting away to different talking head interviews with, you know, dissenting voices. Yeah. Um, that wasn't the style for this film. And so it was a treasure trove to be at the USDA in, in the fall of 2018, um, to, be, to be in that room with people speaking on the public record at the microphone at the front. Yeah. Um, you know, and there was such a diverse uh, pool of people in the room um, expressing their thoughts and opinions and questions. That was really an opportunity to understand and, and to hear from ranchers and farmers you know, the meat industry yeah, and to hear from, you know, uh, public health, uh, interests or, um, you know, um, to hear from the different startups because yeah. we're always with Uma and his team. Well, what about the other startups? Right. So it was a great opportunity, but of course the challenge when you're making a film is that you don't want it to just all be talking. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and and, right? a z- and a zillion perspectives that it's like well, it's hard to know what to make of all this. Yeah. Yeah, but I also always trust uh, in audiences to uh, formulate and come up with their own opinions. And like I said, always my intention, my motivation is to open hearts and minds. Yeah. Um, my films are persuasive, but they're not didactic. Yeah. So, Liz, we're sort of nearing the end of our time, so let's be sure, we'll hopefully have a couple, another question or two after this, but I want to be sure to cover exactly how folks listening um, can watch Meet, Meet, uh, Meet the Future. So it's available, I mentioned, on April 5th. That's next Tuesday. So how would people go about seeing the film if, uh, in light of the conversation we've just had? Yeah, so it's available in the U.S. and select territories um, April 5th onwards um on demand Mm -hmm. so apple tv people can pre-order it on apple tv today yeah um and spread the word and follow us on social media meet the future film um go to our website everything's there including an educational guide uh including well so many things that you want to learn more and watch the film and click on the button to watch the film so meetthefuture.com, M-E-A-T, meetthefuture.com. Now, I had it, uh, maybe I had it, maybe I miswrote it down. So it's not .org, it's .com. .com. Yeah, okay. So Meet the Future, and again, as by now anybody listening would know, it's M-E-A-T, of course, meetthefuture.com for more information about the film. And again, you can see it as of next Tuesday, Apple TV. And uh, so, Liz, thanks uh, so much for making the time to... Uh, Join us again on Talking Animals. It was great speaking with you, and uh, obviously I enjoyed the film, and uh, uh, I'm sure other people are going to find it uh, just a really fascinating, rewarding experience to uh, to check it out and, and dive into the, the UMA world. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. It's great talking to you. I love it. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah, great question. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, Bye. take care. Bye-bye. Bye. In a moment, I'll speak with Eric Keaton of the SPCA Tampa Bay about the organization's 31st 
annual pet walk happening this Saturday, April 2nd, along the waterfront downtown St. Petersburg. Details on that event in just a moment. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner with Alex Edelman and a piece called Coco the Gorilla. In today's comedy corner, I'm talking animals on WMNL. Can I have a round of applause if you've heard of Coco the Gorilla? A few of you guys clapping, some of you not. Coco the Gorilla, for those of you that don't know, is a gorilla that speaks fluent sign language. And in 1999, this is true, Coco met Robin Williams. And last year, they told Coco that Robin Williams had passed away, and Coco went, Coco friend, Coco sad. Which is sad, but on the plus side, how funny was Robin Williams that even gorillas were like, this guy is unbelievable. Have you seen Jumanji? It's a little offensive to us, but still. My comedy hardly works if you're not a Jew from New York City. Robin Williams crossed the species barrier. Second of all, and obviously, did they have to tell the gorilla? That Robin Williams had passed away? She wasn't gonna catch it on Twitter or anything like that. Someone made a conscious decision to walk into a gorilla enclosure. Just like... Hi, Coco. Can you put down the banana? We have some bad news. And they tell Coco, and Coco's like, All right, that was Alex Edelman. In today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Coco the Gorilla, taken from a performance at the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival in Montreal. Now it's time to speak with Eric Keaton from the SPCA Tampa Bay about the big annual pet walk taking place this Saturday in St. Pete. Here's Eric Keaton on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks, thanks for, for having us. Oh, thanks for joining us today on Talking Animals. So let's quickly at least start with just a brief overview of the SPCA Tampa Bay itself. Super, yes. SPCA Tampa Bay, our animal shelter is a for-all animal shelter, meaning we accept all breeds, species, shapes, and sizes. And we've been located in uh, Largo, Florida since 1940, but we also have a public pet hospital in St. Petersburg, and that opened about uh, five years ago. Annually, um, Duncan, we take care of about 7,000 animals every year, and that also includes wildlife. So a lot of folks uh, every day come to us and realize, I had no idea that you guys are more than just dogs and cats, uh, because we also have pigs, ducks, 
we even have a quail right now. Wow. And we've had tortoises and, and tarantulas uh, come to our four-all shelter. So we're quite unique in the Tampa Bay area. Well, I'll say. Well, I would think that uh, to, to fund some of those uh, efforts and services and stuff, that it's probably something like uh, this Saturday's event. So, And I think we could safely call this Saturday's event Venerable. Tell me a little bit about the, uh, the history of it and uh, other elements as well. Oh, definitely. This is the 31st year for our pet walk. And really the last uh, few years, uh, we've kind of had some uh, ups and downs with the, the whole event. Uh, in 2018, the organization decided, hey, we're having this during the fall, and those natural disaster hurricanes keep interrupting our big fundraiser that we have every September and October. So we decided to move it to the spring of 2020. And, of course, we all know what happened during the spring of yeah. 2020. Wow. We had to have a virtual event. So really last year, Duncan, was the first time we actually had an event in April of 2021 where we can invite the public. They bring their animals out to us, whether they adopted from us or not, and had that community party on Saturday and celebrated all things uh, animals and celebrated all the fundraising that hundreds of people and uh, corporations do for us throughout the Tampa Bay area. And this Saturday on April 2nd, uh, will actually be our second pet walk that we've had in the last uh, three or four years. We have uh, several hundred people that have registered already. Uh, we've raised uh, almost 72, 73% of our goal, as it is one of our two biggest fundraisers a year. And we appreciate all that these uh, big corporations and small corporations and, and other animal rescuer uh organizations have done to help us uh with our mission that sounds great eric sounds super encouraging just so we don't run out of time because we're nearing the end of our time uh let's hit the other key details so you mentioned it's this saturday april 2nd i believe it's uh, eight thirty a.m to noon that's right you still have an opportunity to fundraise and join us just go to petwalk.org uh sign up is free and you can join us for the big party on Saturday. The festivities start at 8.30. The walk starts at 10. And if you're so inclined, you can even enter your pet into the pet costume contest that morning, which is a hoot. Can't go wrong with a pet co- a costume contest. Let me ask you this. <laughs> right. so one, one thing, uh, as we're preparing to talk about this, since it's decidedly called a pet walk, not like a dog walk, whatever. So I'm, nonetheless, I imagine the pet walk mostly involves dogs. But yeah. is it... Uh, does it sometimes include other animals? Do people bring other pets to participate? Yeah, they do. I mean, there's a handful of other pets as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, we are a for-all shelter. Yeah. And I'd love to see somebody bring out uh, one of their pigs that walks on a leash because we have had them before. Sure. They would probably steal the show, but it, it, I'm sure there's somebody out there that has a pig that will walk on a leash. Yeah. They don't have to walk the whole uh, mile or two miles for the actual pet walk. Mm. Even if they just show up and celebrate what we call humanimality, the uh, bond between humans and animals, yeah, uh, they would enjoy themselves. Well, that's great. Well, and yeah, because I, I kind of doubt the quail's probably going to participate no, this, this yeah. Saturday. But I don't think we've had many birds. Yeah, I would think not. But but the pig seems like a good candidate for sure. So uh, cats and their little carriers sometimes. Yeah. So it's not like you quite a few people register. How many people do you expect at the actual walk, would you say, uh, Eric? Uh, 
For registered right now, we have more than 400, about 436. And you wow. can see that number is always updating on the petwalk.org uh, website. Okay. But counting all the vendors and everything, we're probably going to see and staff see more than 600 people there. Um, you know, last year we had uh, some limitations because of COVID, but this year it, it's a big community party. And as I mentioned, you know, spread the human animality, bring out your pets. Uh, share their stories with uh, people who love animals. Yeah. Well, it sounds great. We're really looking forward to it. So, again, the, the place to go to find out more and or to register is petwalk.org. And, again, that's for this Saturday, April 2nd, and uh, in, in support of SPCA Tampa Bay. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. Thank you, Duncan. Coming up. On WNF, the music kicks back in with Scott Elliott from noon to 3 p.m., a glorious three hours of music, followed by Robin uh, Hooper with yet another three hours of music, and then we just keep the music coming as we roll into our block of Latin programming and beyond. Meanwhile, on this show at the moment, as the prize for Name That Animal Tune, I'll be offering something fabulous from the Talking Animals Vault to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. It's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. take any guesses that come in off the air because we just have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF. We'll be back next Wednesday with another edition of the show. Invite to uh, tune in for that. Also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. My Apple Podcasts are available there too as well as other podcast platforms. There's also a link to our social media pages and more. Subscribe to our newsletter to find out about our guests a couple of days beforehand. Other news as well from the Talking Animals world. That's all at TalkingAnimals.net. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. This is Talking Animals on WMNF, Tampa, Brandon, Lar- Clearwater, Largo, Wikiwachi, and beyond. NPR News Headlines is next, and followed by the great Scott Elliott after that. We'll see you next Wednesday on Talking Animals.